Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 18 and 19 from Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan Adventure, The Jewels of Opar. We're getting closer to the end, and the drama is building. It was morning before Tarzan could bring himself to a realization of the possibility of failure of his quest, and even then he would only admit that success was but delayed. He would eat and sleep, and then set forth again. The jungle was wide, but wide too with the experience and cunning of Tarzan. Taglet might travel far, but Tarzan would find him in the end, though he had to search every tree in the mighty forest. Soliloquizing thus, the ape-man followed the spoor of Bara the deer, the unfortunate upon which he had decided to satisfy his hunger. For half an hour the trail led the ape-man toward the east along a well-marked game-path, when suddenly, to the stalker's astonishment, the quarry broke into sight, racing madly back along the narrow way, straight toward the hunter. Tarzan, who had been following along the trail, leaped so quickly to the concealing verdure at the side that the deer was still unaware of the presence of an enemy in this direction, and while the animal was still some distance away, the ape-man swung into the lower branches of the tree which overhung the trail. There he crouched, a savage beast of prey, awaiting the coming of its victim. What had frightened the deer into so frantic a retreat, Tarzan did not know. Numa, the lion, perhaps, or Sheeta, the panther. But whatsoever it was mattered little to Tarzan of the apes. He was ready and willing to defend his kill against any other denizen of the jungle. If he were unable to do it by means of physical prowess, he had at his command another and a greater power, his shrewd intelligence. And so... On came the running deer, straight into the jaws of death. The ape-man turned so that his back was toward the approaching animal. He poised with bent knees upon the gently swaying limb above the trail, timing with keen ears the nearing hoofbeats of frightened Bara. In a moment the victim flashed beneath the limb, and at the same instant the ape-man above sprang out and down upon its back. The weight of the man's body carried the deer to the ground. It stumbled forward once in a futile effort to rise and then mighty muscles dragged its head far back, giving the neck a vicious wrench, and Bara was dead. Quick had been the killing, and equally quick were the ape-man's subsequent actions, for who might know what manner of killer pursued Bara, or how close at hand he might be? Scarce had the neck of the victim snapped than the carcass was hanging over one of Tarzan's broad shoulders, and an instant later the ape-man was perched once more among the lower branches of a tree above the trail, his keen, gray eyes scanning the pathway down which the deer had fled. Nor was it long before the cause of Bara's fright became evident to Tarzan, for presently came the unmistakable sounds of approaching horsemen. Dragging his kill after him, the ape-man ascended to the middle terrace, and settling himself comfortably in the crotch of a tree, where he could still view the trail beneath, cut a juicy steak from the deer's loin, and burying his strong, white teeth in the hot flesh, proceeded to enjoy the fruits of his prowess and his cunning. Nor did he neglect the trail beneath while he satisfied his hunger. His sharp eyes saw the muzzle of the leading horse as it came into view around a bend in the tortuous trail, and one by one they scrutinized the riders as they passed beneath them in single file. Among them came one whom Tarzan recognized, but so schooled was the ape-man in the control of his emotions that no slightest change of expression, much less any hysterical demonstration that might have revealed his presence, betrayed the fact of his inward excitement. Beneath him, 
as unconscious of his presence as were the Abyssinians before and behind him, rode Albert Werper, while the ape-man scrutinized the Belgian for some sign of the pouch which he had stolen. As the Abyssinians rode toward the south, a giant figure hovered ever upon their trail, a huge, almost naked white man, who carried the bloody carcass of a deer upon his shoulders, for Tarzan knew that he might not have another opportunity to hunt for some time if he were to follow the Belgian. To endeavor to snatch him from the midst of the armed horsemen, not even Tarzan would attempt, other than in the last extremity, for the way of the wild is the way of caution and cunning, unless they be aroused to rashness by pain or anger. So the Abyssinians and the Belgian marched southward, and Tarzan of the Apes swung silently after them through the swaying branches of the middle terrace. A two-day's march brought them to a level plain, beyond which lay mountains, a plain which Tarzan remembered and which aroused within him vague half-memories and strange longings. Out upon the plain the horsemen rode, and at a safe distance behind them crept the ape-man, taking advantage of such cover as the ground afforded. Beside a charred pile of timbers the Abyssinians halted, and Tarzan, sneaking close and concealing himself in nearby shrubbery, watched them in wonderment. He saw them digging up the earth, and he wondered if they had hidden meat there in the past and now had come for it. Then he recalled how he had buried his pretty pebbles, and the suggestion that had caused him to do it. They were digging for the things the blacks had buried here. Presently he saw them uncover a dirty, yellow object, and he witnessed the joy of Werper and of Abdul Morak as the grimy object was exposed to view. One by one they unearthed many similar pieces, all of the same uniform, dirty yellow, until a pile of them lay upon the ground, a pile which Abdul Morak fondled and petted in an ecstasy of greed. Something stirred in the ape-man's mind as he looked long upon the golden ingots. Where had he seen such before? What were they? Why did these Tarmangani covet them so greatly? To whom did they belong? He recalled the black men who had buried them. The things must be theirs. Werper was stealing them as he had stolen Tarzan's pouch of pebbles. The ape-man's eyes blazed in anger. He would like to find the black men and lead them against these thieves. He wondered where their village might be. As all these things ran through the active mind, a party of men moved out of the forest at the edge of the plain and advanced toward the ruins of the burned bungalow. Abdul Morak, always watchful, was the first to see them, but already they were halfway across the open. He called to his men to mount and hold themselves in readiness, for in the heart of Africa, who may know whether a strange host be friend or foe? Werper, swinging into his saddle, fastened his eyes upon the newcomers. Then, white and trembling, he turned toward Abdul Morak. "'It is Ahmed Zek and his raiders,' he whispered. "'They have come for the gold.' It must have been at about the same instant that Ahmed Zek discovered the pile of yellow ingots and realized the actuality of what he had already feared since first his eyes had alighted upon the party beside the ruins of the Englishman's bungalow. Someone had forestalled him. Another had come for the treasure ahead of him. The Arab was crazed by rage. Recently everything had gone against him. He had lost the jewels, the Belgian, and for the second time he had lost the Englishwoman. Now someone had come to rob him of this treasure, which he had thought as safe from disturbance here as though it had never been mined. He cared not whom the thieves might be. They would not give up the gold without a battle, 
Of that he was certain. And with a wild whoop and a command to his followers, Ahmed Zek put spurs to his horse and dashed down upon the Abyssinians. And after him, waving their long guns above their heads, yelling and cursing, came his motley horde of cutthroat followers. The men of Abdul Morak met them with a volley which emptied a few saddles. And then the raiders were among them, and sword, pistol, and musket, each was doing its most hideous and bloody work. Ahmed Zek, spying Werper at the first charge, bore down upon the Belgian, and the latter, terrified by contemplation of the fate he deserved, turned his horse's head and dashed madly away in an effort to escape. Shouting to a lieutenant to take command, and urging him upon pain of death to dispatch the Abyssinians and bring the gold back to his camp, Ahmed Zek set off across the plain in pursuit of the Belgian, his wicked nature unable to forego the pleasures of revenge, even at the risk of sacrificing the treasure. As the pursued and the pursuer raced madly toward the distant forest, the battle behind them raged with bloody savageness. No quarter was asked by either the ferocious Abyssinians or the murderous cutthroats of Ahmed Zek. From the concealment of the shrubbery, Tarzan watched the sanguinary conflict which so effectually surrounded him that he found no loophole through which he might escape to follow Werper and the Arab chief. The Abyssinians were formed in a circle which included Tarzan's position, and around and into them galloped the yelling raiders, now darting away, now charging in to deliver thrusts and cuts with their curved swords. Numerically, the men of Ahmed Zek were superior, and slowly but surely the soldiers of Menelik were being exterminated. To Tarzan the result was immaterial. He watched with but a single purpose, to escape the ring of blood-mad fighters and be away after the Belgian and his pouch. When he had first discovered Werper upon the trail where he had slain Bara, he had thought that his eyes must be playing him false. So certain had he been that the thief had been slain and devoured by Numa. But after following the detachment for two days, with his keen eyes always upon the Belgian, he had no longer doubted the identity of the man, though he was put to it to explain the identity of the mutilated corpse he had supposed was the man he sought. As he crouched in hiding among the unkept shrubbery, which so short a while since had been the delight and pride of the wife he no longer recalled, an Arab and an Abyssinian wheeled their mounts close to his position as they slashed at each other with their swords. Step by step the Arab beat back his adversary until the latter's horse all but trod upon the ape-man, and then a vicious cut clove the black warrior's skull, and the corpse toppled backward, almost upon Tarzan. As the Abyssinian tumbled from his saddle, the possibility of escape, which was represented by the riderless horse, electrified the ape-man to instant action. Before the frightened beast could gather himself for flight, a naked giant was astride his back. A strong hand had grasped his bridle rein, and the surprised Arab discovered a new foe in the saddle of him whom he had slain. But this enemy wielded no sword, and his spear and bow remained upon his back. The Arab, recovered from his first surprise, dashed in with raised sword to annihilate this presumptuous stranger. He aimed a mighty blow at the ape-man's head, a blow which swung harmlessly through thin air as Tarzan ducked from its path, and then the Arab felt the other's horse brushing his leg. A great arm shot out and encircled his waist, and before he could recover himself he was dragged from his saddle, and forming a shield for his antagonist was borne at a mad run straight through the encircling ranks of his fellows. Just beyond them he was tossed aside upon the ground, 
and the last he saw of his strange foeman, the latter was galloping off across the plain in the direction of the forest at its farther edge. For another hour the battle raged, nor did it cease until the last of the Abyssinians lay dead upon the ground, or had galloped off toward the north in flight. But a handful of men escaped, among them Abdul Morak. The victorious raiders collected about the pile of golden ingots which the Abyssinians had uncovered, and there awaited the return of their leader. Their exultation was slightly tempered by the glimpse they had had of the strange apparition of the naked white man galloping away upon the horse of one of their foemen, and carrying a companion who was now among them expatiating upon the superhuman strength of the ape-man. None of them there but was familiar with the name and fame of Tarzan of the Apes, and the fact that they had recognized the white giant as the ferocious enemy of the wrongdoers of the jungle added to their terror, for they had been assured that Tarzan was dead. Naturally superstitious, they fully believed that they had seen the disembodied spirit of the dead man, and now they cast fearful glances about them in expectation of the ghost's early return to the scene of the ruin they had inflicted upon him during their recent raid upon his home, and discussed in affrighted whispers the probable nature of the vengeance which the spirit would inflict upon them should he return to find them in possession of his gold. As they conversed, their terror grew, while from the concealment of the reeds along the river below them a small party of naked, black warriors watched their every move. From the heights beyond the river, these black men had heard the noise of the conflict, and creeping warily down to the stream, had forded it and advanced through the reeds until they were in a position to watch every move of the combatants. For a half hour the raiders awaited Ahmed Zek's return. Their fear of the earlier return of the ghost of Tarzan constantly undermining their loyalty to and fear of their chief. Finally, one among them voiced the desires of all when he announced that he intended riding forth toward the forest in search of Ahmed Zek. Instantly, every man of them sprang to his mount. "'The gold will be safe here,' cried one. "'We have killed the Abyssinians, and there are no others to carry it away. Let us ride in search of Ahmed Zek.' And a moment later, amidst a cloud of dust, the raiders were galloping madly across the plain, and out from the concealment of the reeds along the river crept a party of black warriors toward the spot where the golden ingots of Opar lay piled on the ground. Werper had still been in advance of Ahmed Zek when he reached the forest, but the latter, better mounted, was gaining upon him. Riding with the reckless courage of desperation, the Belgian urged his mount to greater speed, even within the narrow confines of the winding game trail that the beast was following. Behind him he could hear the voice of Ahmed Zek crying to him to halt, but Werper only dug spurs deeper into the bleeding sides of his panting mount. Two hundred yards within the forest a broken branch lay across the trail. It was a small thing that a horse might ordinarily take in his natural stride without noticing its presence. But Werper's horse was jaded, his feet were heavy with weariness, and as the branch caught between his front legs he stumbled, was unable to recover himself, and went down, sprawling in the trail. Werper, going over his head, rolled a few yards farther on, scrambled to his feet, and ran back. Seizing the reins, he tugged to drag the beast to his feet, but the animal would not, or could not rise, and as the Belgian cursed and struck at him, Ahmed Zek appeared in view. Instantly the Belgian ceased his efforts with the dying animal at his feet, and seizing his rifle, dropped behind the horse, and fired at the oncoming Arab. His bullet, going low, struck Ahmed Zek's horse in the breast, 
"'bringing him down a hundred yards "'from where Werper lay preparing to fire a second shot. "'The Arab, who had gone down with his mount, "'was standing astride him, "'and seeing the Belgian's strategic position "'behind his fallen horse, "'lost no time in taking up a similar one behind his own. "'And there the two lay, "'alternately firing at and cursing each other, "'while from behind the Arab, "'Tarzan of the Apes approached to the edge of the forest. "'Here he heard the occasional shots of the duelist, "'and choosing the safer and swifter avenue "'of the forest branches "'to the uncertain transportation "'afforded by a half-broken Abyssinian pony, "'took to the trees. "'Keeping to one side of the trail, "'the ape-man came presently to a point "'where he could look down in comparative safety "'upon the fighters. First one, and then the other, "'would partially raise himself "'above his breastwork of horse-flesh, "'fire his weapon, "'and immediately drop flat behind his shelter, "'where he would reload and repeat the act a moment later. "'Werper had but little ammunition, "'having been hastily armed by Abdul Morak "'from the body of one of the first of the Abyssinians "'who had fallen in the fight about the pile of ingots. "'And now he realized that soon he would have used his last bullet "'and be at the mercy of the Arab, "'a mercy with which he was well acquainted. "'Facing both death and despoilment of his treasure,' "'the Belgian cast about for some plan of escape, "'and the only one that appealed to him "'as containing even a remote possibility of success "'hinged upon the chance of bribing Akhmazek. "'Werper had fired all but a single cartridge "'when, during a lull in the fighting, "'he called aloud to his opponent. Zek, he cried, "'Allah alone knows which one of us "'may leave our bones to rot "'where he lies upon this trail today "'if we keep up our foolish battle.' "'You wish the contents of the pouch I wear about my waist, "'and I wish my life and my liberty "'even more than I do the jewels. "'Let us each, then, take that which he most desires "'and go our separate ways in peace. "'I will lay the pouch upon the carcass of my horse, "'where you may see it, "'and you in turn will lay your gun upon your horse "'with butt toward me. "'Then I will go away, leaving the pouch to you, "'and you will let me go in safety. "'I want only my life "'and my freedom.' "'The Arab thought in silence for a moment. "'Then he spoke. "'His reply was influenced by the fact "'that he had expended his last shot. "'Go your way, then,' he growled. "'Leaving the pouch in plain sight behind you. "'See? I lay my gun thus, "'with the butt toward you. Go.' "'Werper removed the pouch from about his waist.' "'Sorrowfully and affectionately he let his fingers press the hard outlines of the contents. "'Ah, if he could extract a little handful of the precious stones! "'But Ahmed Zek was standing now, his eagle eyes commanding a plain view of the Belgian and his every act. "'Regretfully Werper laid the pouch, its contents undisturbed, upon the body of his horse, "'rose, and taking his rifle with him, backed slowly down the trail "'until a turn hit him from the view of the watchful Arab.' Even then, Ahmed Zek did not advance, fearful as he was of some such treachery as he himself might have been guilty of under like circumstances. Nor were his suspicions groundless, for the Belgian, no sooner had he passed out of the range of the Arab's vision, halted behind the bowl of a tree, where he still commanded an unobstructed view of his dead horse and the pouch, and raising his rifle, covered the spot where the other's body must appear when he came forward to seize the treasure." But Ahmed Zek was no fool to expose himself to the blackened honor of a thief and a murderer. Taking his long gun with him, he left the trail, entering the rank and tangled vegetation which walled it, 
and crawling slowly forward on hands and knees, he paralleled the trail. But never for an instant was his body exposed to the rifle of the hidden assassin. Thus Achmet Zek advanced until he had come opposite the dead horse of his enemy. The pouch lay there in full view. While a short distance along the trail, Werper waited in growing impatience and nervousness, wondering why the Arab did not come to claim his reward. Presently he saw the muzzle of a rifle appear suddenly and mysteriously a few inches above the pouch, and before he could realize the cunning trick that the Arab had played upon him, the sight of the weapon was adroitly hooked into the rawhide thong which formed the carrying strap of the pouch, and the latter was drawn quickly from his view into the dense foliage at the trail's side. Not for an instant had the raider exposed a square inch of his body, and Werper dared not fire his one remaining shot unless every chance of a successful hit was in his favor. Chuckling to himself, Achmet Zek withdrew a few paces further into the jungle, for he was as positive that Werper was waiting nearby for a chance to shoot him, as though his eyes had penetrated the jungle's trees to the figure of the hiding Belgian. Fingering his rifle behind the bowl of a buttressed giant, Werper did not dare advance. His cupidity would not permit him to depart. And so he stood there, his rifle ready in his hands, his eyes watching the trail before him with cat-like intensity. But there was another who had seen the pouch and recognized it, who did advance with Achmet Zek, hovering above him, as silent and as sure as death itself. And as the Arab, finding a little spot less overgrown with bushes than he had yet encountered, prepared to gloat his eyes upon the contents of the pouch, Tarzan paused it directly above him, intent upon the same object. Wetting his thin lips with his tongue, Achmet Zek loosened the tie-strings which closed the mouth of the pouch, and cupping one claw-like hand, poured forth a portion of the contents into his palm. A single look he took at the stones lying in his hand. His eyes narrowed, a curse broke from his lips, and he hurled the small objects upon the ground disdainfully. Quickly he emptied the balance of the contents until he had scanned each separate stone, and as he dumped them all upon the ground and stamped upon them, his rage grew until the muscles of his face worked in demon-like fury, and his fingers clenched until his nails bit into the flesh. Above, Tarzan watched in wonderment. He had been curious to discover what all the powwow about his pouch had meant. He wanted to see what the Arab would do after the other had gone away, leaving the pouch behind him, and, having satisfied his curiosity, he would then have pounced upon Ahmed Zek and taken the pouch and his pretty pebbles away from him. For did they not belong to Tarzan? He saw the Arab now throw aside the empty pouch, and grasping his long gun by the barrel, club-like, sneak stealthily through the jungle beside the trail along which Werper had gone. As the man disappeared from his view, Tarzan dropped to the ground and commenced gathering up the spilled contents of the pouch. The moment that he obtained his first near view of the scattered pebbles, he understood the rage of the Arab, for instead of the glittering and scintillating gems which at first caught and held the attention of the ape-man, the pouch now contained just a collection of ordinary river pebbles. We'll return with Chapter 19, right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 19, Jane Clayton and the Beasts of the Jungle. Mugambi, after a successful break for liberty, had fallen upon hard times. His way had led him through a country with which he was unfamiliar, 
a jungle country in which he could find no water and but little food, so that after several days of wandering he found himself so reduced in strength that he could barely drag himself along. It was with growing difficulty that he found the strength necessary to construct a shelter by night wherein he might be reasonably safe from the large carnivora, and by day he still further exhausted his strength in digging for edible roots and searching for water. A few stagnant pools at considerable distances apart saved him from death by thirst, but his was a pitiable state when finally he stumbled by accident upon a large river in a country where fruit was abundant and small game which he might bag by means of a combination of stealth, cunning, and a crude knobstick which he had fashioned from a fallen limb. Realizing that he still had a long march ahead of him before he could reach even the outskirts of the Waziri country, Mugambi wisely decided to remain where he was until he had recuperated his strength and health. A few days' rest would accomplish wonders for him, he knew, and he could ill afford to sacrifice his chances for a safe return by setting forth handicapped by weakness. And so it was that he constructed a substantial thorn boma and rigged a thatched shelter within it, where he might sleep by night in security, and from which he could sally forth by day to hunt the flesh which alone could return to his giant thews their normal prowess. And so it was that he constructed a substantial thorn boma, and rigged a thatched shelter within it, and from which he could sally forth by day to hunt the flesh which alone could return to his giant thews their normal prowess. One day, as he hunted, a pair of savage eyes discovered him from the concealment of the branches of a great tree beneath which the black warrior passed. Bloodshot, wicked eyes they were, set in a fierce and hairy face. They watched Mogambi make his little kill of a small rodent, and they followed him as he returned to his hut, their owner moving quietly through the trees upon the trail of the negro. The creature was Chulk, and he looked down upon the unconscious man more in curiosity than in hate. The wearing of the Arab burnous which Tarzan had placed upon his person had aroused in the mind of the anthropoid a desire for similar mimicry of the Tarmangani. The burnous, though, had obstructed his movements and proven such a nuisance that the ape had long since torn it from him and thrown it away. Now, however, he saw a Gomangani arrayed in less cumbersome apparel, a loincloth, a few copper ornaments, and a feather headdress. These were more in line with Chulk's desires than a flowing robe which was constantly getting between one's legs and catching upon every limb and bush along the leafy trail. Chulk eyed the pouch, which suspended over Mugambi's shoulder, swung beside his black hip. This took his fancy, for it was ornamented with feathers and a fringe, and so the ape hung about Mugambi's boma, waiting for an opportunity to seize either by stealth or might some object of the black's apparel. Nor was it long before the opportunity came. Feeling safe within his thorny enclosure, Mugambi was wont to stretch himself in the shade of his shelter during the heat of the day, and sleep in peaceful security until the declining sun carried with it the enervating temperature of midday. Watching from above, Chulk saw the black warrior stretched thus in the unconsciousness of sleep one sultry afternoon. Creeping out upon an overhanging branch, the anthropoid dropped to the ground within the boma. He approached the sleeper upon padded feet which gave forth no sound, and with an uncanny woodcraft that rustled not a leaf or a grass blade. Pausing beside the man, the ape bent over and examined his belongings. Great as was the strength of Chulk, there lay in the back of his little brain a something which deterred him from arousing the man to combat, a sense that is inherent in all the lower orders, a strange fear of man, 
"'that rules even the most powerful of the jungle creatures at times. "'To remove Mugambi's loincloth without awakening him would be impossible, "'and the only detachable things were the knobstick and the pouch, "'which had fallen from the native's shoulder as he rolled in sleep. "'Seizing these two articles, as better than nothing at all, "'Chulk retreated with haste, at every indication of nervous terror, "'to the safety of the tree from which he had dropped, "'and, still haunted by that indefinable terror "'which the close proximity of man awakened in his breast, "'fled precipitately through the jungle. "'Aroused by attack, or supported by the presence of another of his kind, "'Chulk could have braved the presence of a score of human beings. "'But alone? That was a different matter. "'Alone and unenraged.' It was some time after Mugambi awoke that he missed the pouch. Instantly he was all excitement. What could have become of it? It had been at his side when he lay down to sleep. Of that he was certain, for had he not pushed it from beneath him when its bulging bulk, pressing against his ribs, caused him discomfort? Yes, it had been there when he lay down to sleep. How, then, had it vanished? Mugambi's savage imagination was filled with visions of the spirits of departed friends and enemies, for only to the machinations of such as these could he attribute the disappearance of his pouch and knobstick in the first excitement of the discovery of their loss. But later, and more careful investigation, such as his woodcraft made possible, revealed indisputable evidence of a more material explanation than his excited fancy and superstition had at first led him to accept. In the trampled turf beside him was the faint impress of huge man-like feet, Mugambi raised his brows as the truth dawned upon him. Hastily leaving the boma, he searched in all directions about the enclosure for some further sign of the telltale spore. He climbed trees and sought for evidence of the direction of the thief's flight, but the faint signs left by a wary ape who elects to travel through the trees eluded the woodcraft of Mugambi. Tarzan might have followed them, but no ordinary mortal could perceive them, or perceiving, translate them. Mugambi, now strengthened and refreshed by his rest, felt ready to set out again for Waziri, but finding himself another knobstick, turned his back upon the river and plunged into the mazes of the jungle. As Taglet struggled with the bonds which secured the ankles and wrists of his captive, the great lion that eyed the two from behind a nearby clump of bushes wormed closer to his intended prey. The ape's back was toward the lion. He did not see the broad head, fringed by its rough mane, "'protruding through the leafy wall. "'He could not know that the powerful hind paws "'were gathering close beneath the tawny belly, "'preparatory to a sudden spring, "'and his first intimation of impending danger "'was the thunderous and triumphant roar "'which the charging lion could no longer suppress. "'Scarce pausing for a backward glance, "'Taglet abandoned the unconscious woman "'and fled in the opposite direction "'from the horrid sound "'which had broken in so unexpected "'and terrifying a manner upon his startled ears.' but the warning had come too late to save him, and the lion, in his second bound, alighted full upon the broad shoulders of the anthropoid. As the great bull went down, there was awakened in him to the full all the cunning, all the ferocity, all the physical prowess which obey the mightiest of the fundamental laws of nature, the law of self-preservation, and turning upon his back, he closed with the carnivore in a death struggle so fearless and abandoned that for a moment the great Numa himself "'may have trembled for the outcome. "'Seizing the lion by the mane, "'Taglet buried his yellowed fangs "'deep in the monster's throat, "'growling hideously through the muffled gag "'of blood and hair. 
"'Mixed with the ape's voice, "'the lion's roars of rage and pain "'reverberated through the jungle, "'till the lesser creatures of the wild, "'startled from their peaceful pursuits, "'scurried fearfully away. "'Rolling over and over upon the turf, "'the two battled with demoniac fury, "'until the colossal cat, "'by doubling his hind paws far up beneath his belly, "'sank his talons deep into Taglet's chest. "'Then, ripping downward with all his strength, "'Numa accomplished his design.' and the disemboweled anthropoid, with a last spasmodic struggle, relaxed in limp and bloody dissolution beneath his titanic adversary. Scrambling to his feet, Numa looked about quickly in all directions, as though seeking to detect the possible presence of other foes, but only the still and unconscious form of the girl, lying a few paces from him, met his gaze, and with an angry growl he placed a forepaw upon the body of his kill, and raising his head, "'gave voice to his savage victory cry. "'For another moment he stood with fierce eyes "'roving to and fro about the clearing. "'At last they halted for a second time upon the girl. "'A low growl rumbled from the lion's throat. "'His lower jaw rose and fell, "'and the slaver drooled and dripped "'upon the dead face of Taglet. "'Like two yellow-green augers, "'wide and unblinking, "'the terrible eyes remained fixed upon Jane Clayton.' The erect and majestic pose of the great frame shrank suddenly into a sinister crouch, as, slowly and gently as one who treads on eggs, the devil-faced cat crept forward toward the girl. Beneficent fate maintained her in happy unconsciousness of the dread presence sneaking stealthily upon her. She did not know when the lion paused at her side. She did not hear the sniffing of his nostrils as he smelled about her. She did not feel the heat of the fetid breath upon her face, nor the dripping of the saliva from the frightful jaws half-opened so close above her. Finally the lion lifted a forepaw and turned the body of the girl half over. Then he stood again eyeing her, as though still undetermined whether life was extinct or not. Some noise or odor from the nearby jungle attracted his attention for a moment. His eyes did not again return to Jane Clayton, and presently he left her, walked over to the remains of Taglet, and crouching down upon his kill with his back toward the girl, proceeded to devour the ape. It was upon this scene that Jane Clayton at last opened her eyes. Inured to danger, she maintained her self-possession in the face of the startling surprise which her newfound consciousness revealed to her. She neither cried out nor moved a muscle, "'until she had taken in every detail of the scene "'which lay within the range of her vision. "'She saw that the lion had killed the ape, "'and that he was devouring his prey "'less than fifty feet from where she lay. "'But what could she do? "'Her hands and feet were bound. "'She must wait, then, "'in what patience she could command, "'until Numa had eaten and digested the ape, "'when, without doubt, "'he would return to feast upon her, "'unless in the meantime... "'the dread hyenas should discover her, "'or some other of the numerous prowling carnivora of the jungle. "'As she lay tormented by these frightful thoughts, "'she suddenly became conscious "'that the bonds at her wrist and ankles no longer hurt her, "'and then of the fact that her hands were separated, "'one lying upon either side of her, "'instead of both being confined at her back. "'Wonderingly, she moved a hand. "'What miracle had been performed? "'It was not bound.' Stealthily and noiselessly, she moved her other limbs, only to discover that she was free. She could not know how the thing had happened that Taglet, 
gnawing upon them for sinister purposes of his own, had cut them through but an instant before Numa had frightened him from his victim. For a moment, Jane Clayton was overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving, but only for a moment. What good was her newfound liberty in the face of the frightful beast crouching so close beside her? If she could have had this chance under different conditions, how happily she would have taken advantage of it. But now it was given to her when escape was practically impossible. The nearest tree was a hundred feet away, the lion less than fifty. To rise and attempt to reach the safety of those tantalizing branches would be but to invite instant destruction, for Numa would doubtless be too jealous of this future meal to permit it to escape with ease. And yet, too, there was another possibility, a chance which hinged entirely upon the unknown temper of the great beast. His belly already partially filled, he might watch with indifference the departure of the girl. Yet could she afford to chance so improbable a contingency? She doubted it. Upon the other hand, she was no more minded to allow this frail opportunity for life to entirely elude her without taking or attempting to take some advantage from it. She watched the lion narrowly. He could not see her without turning his head more than halfway round. She would attempt a ruse. Silently she rolled over in the direction of the nearest tree and away from the lion until she lay again in the same position in which Numa had left her, but a few feet farther from him. Here she lay breathless, watching the lion, but he gave no indication that he had heard aught to arouse his suspicions. Again she rolled over, gaining a few more feet, and again she lay in rigid contemplation of the beast's back. During what seemed hours to her tense nerves, Jane Clayton continued these tactics, and still the lion fed on in apparent unconsciousness that his second prey was escaping him. Already the girl was just but a few paces from the tree. A moment more, and she would be close enough to chance springing to her feet, throwing caution aside, and making a sudden, bold dash for safety. She was halfway over in her turn, her face away from the lion, when he suddenly turned his great head and fastened his eyes upon her. He saw her roll over upon her side away from him, and then her eyes were turned again toward him, and the cold sweat broke from the girl's every pore as she realized that with life almost within her grasp, death had found her out. For a long time, neither the girl nor the lion moved. The beast lay motionless, his head turned upon his shoulders, and his glaring eyes fixed upon the rigid victim, now nearly fifty yards away. The girl stared back straight into those cruel orbs, daring not to move even a muscle. The strain upon her nerves was becoming so unbearable that she could scarcely restrain a growing desire to scream. When Numa deliberately turned back to the business of feeding, but his back-laid ears attested a sinister regard for the actions of the girl behind him. Realizing that she could not again turn without attracting his immediate and perhaps fatal attention, Jane Clayton resolved to risk all in one last attempt to reach the tree and clamber to the lowest branches. Gathering herself steadily for the effort, she leaped suddenly to her feet. But almost simultaneously the lion sprang up, wheeled, and with wide distended jaws and terrific roars, charged swiftly down upon her. Those who have spent lifetimes hunting the big game of Africa will tell you that scarcely any other creature in the world attains the speed of a charging lion. 
for the short distance that the great cat can maintain it. It resembles nothing more closely than the onrushing of a giant locomotive under full speed. And so, though the distance that Jane Clayton must cover was relatively small, the terrific speed of the lion rendered her hopes of escape almost negligible. Yet fear can work wonders, and though the upward spring of the lion as he neared the tree into which she was scrambling brought his talons in contact with her boots, she eluded his raking grasp, and as he hurtled against the bowl of her sanctuary, the girl drew herself into the safety of the branches above his reach. For some time the lion paced, growling and moaning, beneath the tree in which Jane Clayton crouched, panting and trembling. The girl was a prey to the nervous reaction from the frightful ordeal through which she had so recently passed, and in her overwrought state it seemed that never again should she dare descend to the ground among the fearsome dangers which infested the broad stretch of jungle that she knew must lie between herself and the nearest village of her faithful Waziri. It was almost dark before the lion finally quit the clearing, and even had his place beside the remnants of the mangled ape not been immediately usurped by a pack of hyenas, Jane Clayton would scarcely have dared venture from her refuge in the face of the impending night. And so she composed herself as best she could for the long and tiresome wait, until daylight might offer some means of escape from the dread vicinity in which she had witnessed such terrifying adventures. Tired nature at last overcame even her fears, and she dropped into a deep slumber, cradled in a comparatively safe, though rather uncomfortable, position against the bowl of the tree, and supported by two large branches which grew outward, almost horizontally, but a few inches apart. The sun was high in the heavens when she at last awoke, and beneath there was no sign either of Numa or the hyenas. Only the clean-picked bones of the ape, scattered about the ground, attested the fact of what had transpired in this seemingly peaceful spot but a few hours before. Both hunger and thirst assailed her now, and realizing that she must descend or die of starvation, she at last summoned courage to undertake the ordeal of continuing her journey through the jungle. Descending from the tree, she set out in a southerly direction, toward the point where she believed the plains of Waziri lay, and though she knew that only ruin and desolation marked the spot where once her happy home had stood, she hoped that by coming to the broad plain she might eventually reach one of the numerous Waziri villages that were scattered over the surrounding country or chance upon a roving band of these indefatigable huntsmen. The day was half spent, when there broke unexpectedly upon her startled ears the sound of a rifle shot not far ahead of her. As she paused to listen, this first shot was followed by another, and another, and yet another. What could it mean? The first explanation which sprung to her mind attributed the firing to an encounter between the Arab raiders and a party of Waziri, but as she did not know upon which side victory might rest, or whether she were behind friend or foe, she dared not advance nearer on the chance of revealing herself to an enemy. After listening for several minutes, she became convinced that no more than two or three rifles were engaged in the fight, since nothing approximating the sound of a volley reached her ears, but still she hesitated to approach, and at last, determining to take no chance, she climbed into the concealing foliage of a tree beside the trail she had been following, and there fearfully awaited whatever might reveal itself. As the firing became less rapid, she caught the sound of men's voices, though she could distinguish no words, and at last the reports of the guns ceased, and she heard two men calling to each other in loud tones. 
Then there was a long silence, which was finally broken by the stealthy padding of footfalls on the trail ahead of her. And in another moment a man appeared in view, backing toward her, a rifle ready in his hands, and his eyes directed in careful watchfulness along the way that he had come. Almost instantly Jane Clayton recognized the man as Jules Freecolt, who so recently had been a guest in her home. She was upon the point of calling to him in glad relief when she saw him leap quickly to one side and hide himself in the thick verdure at the trail's side. It was evident that he was being followed by an enemy, and so Jane Clayton kept silent, lest she distract Freecolt's attention or guide his foe to his hiding place. Scarcely had Freecolt hidden himself than the figure of a white-robed Arab crept silently along the trail in pursuit. From her hiding place, Jane Clayton could see both men plainly. She recognized Ahmed Zek as the leader of the band of ruffians who had raided her home and made her a prisoner, and as she saw Freecolt, the supposed friend and ally, raise his gun and take careful aim at the Arab, her heart stood still, and every power of her soul was directed upon a fervent prayer for the accuracy of his aim. Ahmed Zek paused in the middle of the trail. His keen eyes scanned every bush and tree within the radius of his vision. His tall figure presented a perfect target to the perfidious assassin. There was a sharp report, and a little puff of smoke arose from the bush that hid the Belgian, as Ahmed Zek stumbled forward and pitched face down upon the trail. As Werper stepped back into the trail, he was startled by the sound of a glad cry from above him, and as he wheeled about to discover the author of this unexpected interruption, he saw Jane Clayton drop lightly from a nearby tree and run forward with outstretched hands to congratulate him upon his victory. We'll return with the Tarzan adventure, the Jewels of Opar, and more chapters as we get closer to the end, next Sunday at 12 noon Eastern Time. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road, and we always appreciate reviews here. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.